the 48th Psalm. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs. As when you break the ships of Tarish, with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. We have thought, O oh God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O oh God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. We'll go ahead and uh, open prayer today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to meet in this beautiful location. Thank you for each person that's here. I would ask that you bless them, take good care of them, and uh, just lead them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And Lord, we do love you, we praise you, and we want this service today to bring honor and glory to you, that you will be glorified through it. And May my words today be uh, pleasing in your sight and uh, uh, don't allow me to err or stray from your holy word. Lord, you're a great king and uh, just we dedicate this service and this sermon to you. All glory, the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we got just a few announcements and um, we'll get those out of the way. And then after we make the announcements, I have a couple prayer requests and uh, then we'll get into a New Testament reading for the day. Um, uh, some of the announcements, of course, are that um, I am still looking for a church to actually preach at rather than uh, out on the beach. Not that I don't want to be out here and I can continue to do this, but obviously I'm going to need a church at some point to uh, support my beautiful wife when she retires. So uh, that's something that I'm looking forward to. Um, if anybody here has never been scripturally baptized and you say today is the day I want to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, meaning being submerged under the water as a picture of his death and raised out of the water as a picture of his resurrection, let me know before I go home and I'll be happy to take you out there and baptize you in front of the whole world. And uh, get, there's still water out there. I just checked. So um, don't have to worry about that. And um, of course, uh, there are some prayer requests. Oh, before I get into the prayer requests, one other thing is while we are on Facebook, I'm sorry, on YouTube with these sermons, I would ask the people that watch online if uh, they would be willing to share this with other people. Um, if a church never comes along, and that may be what the Lord wants for me is to you know, be out here only. And if that's the case, then I would hope that it 
some point we could expand the ministry on YouTube enough where uh, it would eventually be able to take care of the needs of my wife and others. I've had people on YouTube offer to send me money, and I've told them, no, please don't do that. Um, but at some point, I may say, you know, we have this many people watching every week, and if this is your regular church, then maybe we can work it out that way. I don't know. And uh, I just all I know is that I love God's word, and I want to preach it. And I know that he is leading me. There's no worry or concern here. But that's something I would ask is that if you are on YouTube, share this with others. And if it's something they find edifying, make it your home church. I have no problem with that. Um, all right. A couple prayer requests. Obviously, I bring up Paul and Elaine, who are our missionaries from Church on the Beach to Japan. They've been over there faithfully serving the Lord now for about a half a year, maybe a little more. And uh, I miss them personally terribly because they're such wonderful people. But in addition to that, uh, I'm just so thankful for their ministry because they have brought one lady to the Lord. And in Japan, that is a real, real accomplishment. There are some people that have been missionaries for 20 years that have never had a conversion. But you keep being a testimony and a witness, and it can happen. So uh, I, I'm very excited for what they're doing. And I just got a weekly new, or a monthly newsletter from them this week, and it was, it was wonderful to read. So remember them in prayer. Uh, we have Amy over here. won't give her last name, but she currently has shingles. And if you know how utterly painful those are, we want to keep her in prayer today and throughout the week. Please do that. And uh, I have a, a friend of mine, not a close friend, but somebody that attends here on the beach who is very close to him. And he and his wife and their daughter died in her sleep this week. I think uh, she was how old? 18 years old and she died in her sleep so I, I can't even imagine the, what they're going through this happened to one of my other friends here a few years ago and uh, I saw the anguish on their eyes and my heart goes out to this gentleman I, I just I I can't even imagine so we want to keep them in prayer and I'm sure that I am forgetting some other prayer request out here and if I am you know we'll just uh, ask that the Lord will just relieve us of our burdens and uh, carry us through our trials and I do want to thank everybody that's come today that isn't regularly here. I got several people that have showed up that have completely surprised me. And then one lady that uh, discovered this on uh, Facebook. And so she decided to come down to church on the beach today. And I thank her for being here. And uh, anyway, one more prayer and then we'll get into a New Testament reading and a final Psalm reading before the sermon. Heavenly Father, you do know each and every prayer need of the people here. And uh, in particular, those that have been raised up to you of, of real physical pain, real family suffering, and uh, real needs for our missionaries overseas, as well as any other uh, physical or spiritual or emotional or, or uh, financial need that is out there. Lord, I would ask that you would look upon these and just respond according to your wisdom and your grace and your mercy. And be with your people as we walk through this veil of tears and lead us into your heavenly presence some glorious day. And may that be soon. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for every good and kind blessing that comes down from our Father of heavenly lights. And these things we pray in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, today our New Testament reading is from the book of Romans. It's chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. And... Uh, I don't give a lot of commentary on I just read it, and I will sometimes interject something. But uh, Romans 2, starting with verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. Now, people have accused Paul of diminishing the law. He never does that. He says that the law has its place in 
God's workings in human history. The law is bondage, as we'll see today. It's something that was meant to lead us to an understanding of how utterly sinful sin is and our need for something greater than the law itself, which is Jesus Christ. But he never diminishes what the purpose of the law was. All right? Um, and confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make the boast your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Now, I will stop and say that in the book of Ezekiel, quite a few times, God comes down greatly on Israel. And this is at the time that he is saying, I'm going to bring you back from the nations in Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and 39. But he goes on and he says, I'm not doing this for your sake, O house of Israel, because you've been out blaspheming my name among the nations. I'm doing this for my holy name's sake. And because of that, and because of that reason in particular, we are to support the nation of Israel. Not because they're any better than anybody else, not because they are somehow more special than anybody else or that they are keepers of the law because they're apparently not. All you need to do is look at Hollywood and it's 99% Jewish and it's corrupt and what comes out of there is quite evil. The point though is that God is preserving Israel for his name's sake and therefore because of that we must support the nation of Israel and any nation that fights against the nation of Israel is going to be swept away in human history that's all there is to it we need to make right choices in our current uh, administration and we need to make the right choice at the voters booth to ensure that a president is elected this November who will fully support the nation of Israel that is an absolute must because if we turn our backs on them as we have in the past three years we are going to be fighting against God. So please keep that in mind. Um, verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. He explains circumcision in great detail in the book of Galatians. And it, it, he goes on to say that if you, meaning the Gentile people, decide to be circumcised in order to keep the law, you're bound to keep the whole law. Circumcision is not something that we are required to do. He's making a point about it here, though. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. Well, the law nobody can keep the law we've talked about that in the past and we're going to talk about it in the future the whole point of Christ's coming was to fulfill the law that we can't fulfill so if you keep the law but if you are a breaker of the law your circumcision has become uncircumcision that's why God even in the Old Testament asked for a circumcision of the heart not in the flesh therefore if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is yes, it will. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code, meaning the law, and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now what he's doing in that last verse is he's making a pun, because the term Jew comes from the tribe of Judah. The meaning of the word Judah is praise. And he's saying that the praise of God comes 
How did he put it? Not from men, but from God. So the entire point of being a Jew is to bring God glory. And it doesn't come from an outward physical sign. It comes from following his precepts, and in particular, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All right, if I can get, uh, would you like to come up and read one more? All right, I, if I can get Doris to come up and read the 32nd Psalm, then we can get into the, uh, into the sermon for today. And what I'm going to ask you to do is stand right about here where I am now, and maybe, I hope I can do this with you. I don't want to move the camera, and all I got was your head in the last one, but you, you read so beautifully that, uh, boy, you are hired. Um, absolutely. There you go. 32nd Psalm. The 32nd Psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and brittle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, if I could only read the Bible as beautifully as she just did. I just, I'm almost in tears here at, at her presentation. Thank you, Doris. All right, today's sermon is going to be on Genesis 16, and we're going to do the entire chapter today, which is kind of unusual. Usually I do a couple verses, but uh, <laughs> this is verses 1 through 16, and it's entitled El Roy, the God Who Sees. Now, before I do the sermon, you know, every week I like to give a couple tidbits from this day in history. So, this day, which is, uh, I think it's the 29th of June, or July, is that right? Yeah. 29th of July. Okay, just so that the people watching at home know what day I'm talking about. In 1858, and this is kind of personal to me, uh, U.S. citizens were allowed to live anywhere in Japan, and this was based on the first commercial treaty between the U.S. and Japan. All right, my wife is from Japan, and uh, thank goodness for that. Now, obviously, after 1858, there was a little bit of trial, and we got into a war, but we have become best friends with Japan, and I hope that does never diminish, because what a beautiful country full of really wonderful people. Um, in 1899, and you know how much I don't like sports, uh, and so I don't consider this sports at all, and so I'm bringing it up as a personal issue rather than something for the sports fans. 
the first motorcycle race was held in Manhattan Beach, New York. So I, I don't think that's really a sport so much as just some great thing. So uh, there you go, 1899. In 1914, we had the first transcontinental telephone service. It was inaugurated when two people held a conversation between New York, New York, and San Francisco, California. And I have a telephone at my house which actually still works, which is older than that conversation. So that means that it was used for regional calls until whenever they were able to work out the transcontinental thing. But uh, it's an old candlestick telephone. It works just fine. Unfortunately, now all I have is a magic jack, which goes through the computer, and it won't work. Uh -huh. So it has to be a landline through the old system. But anyway, these uh, old phones really, really hold together because I've got a phone less than a year old, and I've got to replace it because Kelly knows very well the battery went dead while I was talking to her yesterday. <laughs> happens all the time. So anyway, in 1928, oh, great, great, great. Walt Disney Steamboat Willie was released. Now, this was actually not the first time that uh, Steamboat or Mickey Mouse was introduced. A lot of people think that's true. It was the first time that a Mickey Mouse production was distributed. And so this is actually the birth of Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse, which was Steamboat Willie, if you remember the old, you know, moving the thing and whistling and all that. Great stuff. 1957, the International Atomic Energy Agency was established, and even to this day, they're just completely screwing up our, our societies. I mean, they can't get it right, and the people that run this particular agency are ungodly, and they make <laughs> ungodly decisions. They work against the countries that probably should have nuclear weapons, and they turn a blind eye to the countries that definitely should not have them. So that uh, all started in 1957. And finally, in 1958, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration was authorized by the U.S. Congress, became a great agency in uh, the U.S. government, and uh, within the past couple years, it's diminished to almost nothing except promoting Muslim uh, relations. I mean, that's been their primary purpose in the past couple years is just to promote, you know, happiness between America and Muslims, and that has nothing to do with space, but whatever, you take your money and you spend it where you can if that's your agenda. So anyway, that's this day in history. Uh, as I said, we're in uh, Genesis 16, ver yes, 16 verses 1 through 16. And as I said a moment ago, this is called Elroy, the God who sees. Japan is a country of great beauty and feeling. It's very different from the U.S. in many of the things that they do. I assure you, having lived there six years, are very foreign to us. How they do things are things we just wouldn't think are normal. When I lived there, when I first arrived there, I met two guys named Minoru and Atsushi. And they worked at what was called Fusa Denpo, or the telecom, which is in the town of Fusa. And when I could, when I had time, I'd go over and visit them at work, or they'd come onto the base and they'd visit me at my dorm, or we'd go out and, you know, have dinner or whatever. But one of the things that I saw these two guys doing, Minoru and Atsushi, and I thought, this is just, this is wrong is they would take their boss out almost every single night of the week and they would buy their boss drinks. And I thought, you know, this, this just doesn't seem normal. And then on holidays, they would bring their boss presents, not the other way around. Now, in America, we have not so nice terms for people that do things this way. Another thing that might seem very odd, and I can assure you that it seemed very, very odd to me, especially even on a military basis, that if you're in the restroom, the cleaning lady would walk right in without knocking, and she'd start cleaning the urinal right next to you. Or if you were, you know, in another area of the bathroom, she'd just 
it, it, it was very, very hard as, for me as an American to get used to this. And yet, this is the way that they would do it. And when they were cleaning, they didn't put up a sign saying female in the bathroom. There was nothing like that. And so it was something that we would think this is just plain old strange. There were all kinds of things like this when I was over there and also in Malaysia and other countries as well that seem nutty or they seem completely opposed to the way things should be done. But the problem was not with them. The problem was with us because we were in their culture. So we get it backwards as Americans when we think that people should do things the way that we think they should be done. We're in their culture. We need to adjust to that. And today's sermon is going to contain some things like this. They seem foreign. They might seem odd. They might seem downright sinful to some of the people even here today. But this is not the way that it was at all. This was a different culture. They had different views on the world. And we need to understand that the things are the way they are for them and not for us in particular. We are entering into their culture and we need to adapt to it or we will end up finding fault where there is no fault. Some time ago, I think it was about four sermons ago, I said that if the Bible doesn't condemn an action, then neither should we. Instead, we should accept that action at face value and attempt to learn from it and not point fingers as if our values are somehow more dignified. This is recorded in God's word and if God didn't condemn it, then let it stand. The things that we're going to read about today are recorded for us to see how things transpired. Why things are the way they are, even in the world to this day, and how God's plan is being accomplished in amazing, amazing ways. And all from people's actions that may seem contrary to the way that we think things should be done. That brings us to our text verse for today, which is Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, I'm going to stop right there before I read these verses. I'm going to say that these verses are not just pertinent to what we're going to talk about today. They are pertinent to our own lives. So pay attention to what they say because Paul's words have an effect on us under the government in which we live. All right. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, I want you to know real quickly, before I get away from the text verse, that our final authority for our government in the United States of America is not the president, and it is not the Congress, and it is not the Supreme Court. It is the declaration, I'm sorry, the U.S. Constitution. That is our authority. What the U.S. Constitution says is acceptable is where we stand. Now, the courts can interpret that, but something like the Second Amendment, which says that the right of citizens uh, to bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, I misquoted that, but you understand what I'm saying. That is something that was given to us by the ultimate authority in our government. <laughs> it is not something that the government has a right to take away without amending the Constitution. So keep those things in mind, but overall, we are to submit to the authorities in our government under the duly uh, approved laws that have been passed by the Congress, approved by the President, and then confirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court or any lower authorities which exist. Because if we don't, we are fighting against God in a certain sense. Sometimes submitting to authority is something that we just don't want to do, especially when that authority rules over us harshly. It's in times like these that we need to trust God 
and trust that he has placed us in that position for his own good purposes and to attempt to live under that premise to the extent that we will bring him the glory and the honor that he is due. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today in Genesis 16 is different culture, different time. Be nice to Avram and Sarai. Verse one, now Sarai, Avram's wife had borne him no children and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Chapter 16 be begins with the problem which has afflicted Avram for 10 years now, ever since he entered into the promised land and he was given the promise of his descendants possessing the land. And that problem is that he still has no descendants. He has no children. God made this promise to him right when he entered in Genesis 12. He made it again in Genesis 13 and in Genesis 15. And the promise made in Genesis 15 is very specific. I think we talked about it last week or two weeks ago. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one, meaning Eliezer, who was uh, the chief steward of his house, this one shall not be your heir, but one will come from your own body shall be your heir. It's appropriate to note before we get into the coming verses that what was promised does not mention Sarai at all. Keep that in mind. Let's remember this because at this point, Avram is 85 years old and Sarai is 75 years old. They've probably been married for at least 50 years and probably even longer than that. It's pretty evident to both of them that Sarai is barren and will not have children. And God made the promise to Avram and didn't say anything about Sarai. Although the Bible doesn't say this, we can make the logical assumption as well that this Egyptian maidservant named Hagar came into Avram's house when they were living down in Egypt. I don't know if you remember the story we talked about several weeks ago. They went down to Egypt for a short time. Sarai at that time was taken into Pharaoh's house to become his wife. This happened because he didn't know that Sarai was Avram's wife. And when Pharaoh took her in, he gave Avram a great deal for this uh, exchange, including human servants. Hagar is probably one of those servants. After coming into their home then, they named her Hagar, as this is a Hebrew, not an Egyptian name. Hagar's name means flight, and that actually has a bearing on something that's coming up in a couple of verses. The term flight is very closely related to the term the sojourner. Verse 2, so Sarai said to Avram, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Avram heeded the voice of Sarai. At 75, Sarai decided that she probably was not going to have any children, and she certainly wanted them as much as Avram expected them. He had been given the promise, and she could not fulfill it. And so using the custom of the day, she does the natural thing that one would expect. Hagar belonged solely to Sarai, completely and entirely. She was her possession, and anything that Hagar worked for or any children she had would become the rightful possession of Sarai. Therefore, the child that would belong, be born to her would belong to her, meaning Sarai, as much as it would to Avram. In what might seem even more unusual is the custom, you may have heard of this, you may not if it's very interesting, that there's the custom of the servant having the child in the lap of the surrogate. In other words, having her child in the lap of Sarai. <laughs> children were born 
at that time from a sitting position, not a laying position like they do it now. And she, Hagar, would have sat in Sarai's lap, and that would have symbolically shown the child actually coming from Sarai. It's a very interesting custom that you can read about. It's not in the Bible, but it's something we do know they did in those times. The term Sarai uses here confirms all of this. She said, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. This is a word that indicates that she is building or laying a foundation. In other words, what she's looking to do is to establish the house of Avram and her through this union between Avram and Hagar. So we can see that this is something that was appropriate to the situation and the customs of the day. After making the proposition to him, the Bible records, and Avram heeded the voice of Sarai. Okay, baby, I'll do this difficult task for you. <laughs> Verse 3. Then Sarai, Avram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Avram, to be his wife. And Avram had, after Avram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. We can stand back, and in our minds, we can picture exactly what's happened here. Sarai, the mother, or the, the Avram's wife, certainly took Hagar by the hand, and she led her into Avram's tent and grabbed his hand and placed it on Hagar's. Thus, the verse says, she gave her to her husband to be his wife. The two were joined in a rite that had probably been conducted many, many times in the land, and it would have been perfectly acceptable to everyone around them. This was a union without scandal. The same thing happens even to this day in various cultures around the world, and we cannot look down on the two of them for doing this. We need to remember, as I said earlier, this is their culture, this is their tradition. What we might see as abnormal is to them a regular part of the society in which they lived. And we do this today, believe it or not, right here in America. We just have, you know, uh, syringes and stuff to do it. I think it's called in vitro fertilization. This is what people do. And other cultures may say, well, look at how bad that is, when in fact the only difference is that there's not a physical union between the two, but you're getting exactly the same results and doing exactly the same thing. So we need to be careful to analyze this from God's perspective. Verse 4, so he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. No sooner had Hagar conceived than she began to act harshly toward her mistress Sarai. She was probably much younger than her and thought that she would now move into the presidential palace and move the first lady out because she bore the child and would also find favor in Avram's eyes. At this point in the narrative, most Bible scholars, and I mean most that I read, say that what is happening is a direct result of the mischief that had been conducted in the whole affair between Sarai and Hagar and Avram, as if there is some type of blame on Avram and Sarai for what they've been doing. But this is a really poor analysis of the situation, particularly considering the culture and the circumstances. The fault rests not on either Avram or Sarai, but it rests in Hagar's attempting to usurp Sarai. And later in the Bible, we will see Solomon's words about this exact situation from Proverbs chapter 30. For three things the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four, it cannot bear up. For a servant, when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, a hateful woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. The earth simply cannot bear up under the injustice which has occurred because of Hagar's actions. Avram, as the head of the household, will have to act very judiciously in order to keep things from spiraling out of control. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is now Sarai. That's just not nice.
verse 5. Then Sarai said to Avram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. At this point, Sarai is letting her motions rule the day. She blames Avram for what's happening, when in fact, according to the account and according to her own words in this very verse, she's the one who initiated the action and she has set the entire thing up. Hagar is her property and at her disposal. But as soon as things go wrong, she turns around and blames Avram. Truth be known, he probably did not even know what was going on. Because Hagar is her maid, he would be completely uninterested in whatever they were doing. But in an almost hysterical note, Sarai exclaims, the Lord judge between you and me. Unfortunately, this is the exact type of situation that causes grief in families, in friendships, and even between societies and nations. Instead of coming and resolving a matter quietly, we storm into situations with almost reckless abandon and end up paying for it in the end. So we need to be very careful how we approach these type of things. And I will give as an example, a living example of this today, between nations, we have had certain actions over the past three years which have actually got us into more trouble than we would have been if we had just simply coolly and calmly consulted counselors and got into those particular international affairs. But that is not the way things have been going, and we have really been suffering because of it. And how Avram responds here is going to be particularly important because as the proverb says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Verse six, so Avram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Avram took the calm route and he passed it right back to where it belonged. And when he did, Sarai took it to an unnecessary extreme and caused even more trouble. Hagar fled. Now I want to see if any of you have noticed the irony here. Avram allowed Sarai to go into the Egyptian Pharaoh's house in order to preserve his own life. And when the ordeal was over, Pharaoh rebuked him, kicked him out of Egypt, and so he headed back to Canaan. Now Sarai asked Avram to go into the Egyptian servant who came from Pharaoh's house to continue on Avram's name, and she ended up rebuking him. And finally, the maid runs away, heading back for home, which is Egypt. In both instances, Avram is caught in the middle of a situation that was intended for good, but which turned out to be a headache. Anyway, Avram did exactly the right thing. He handed this matter right back to where it belonged in Sarai's lap. Hagar is her maid and not his, and she needed to handle it. And I can assure you that there is a very good life lesson here and something that I personally need to handle a little better myself. And my wife can testify to this. This is the proper delegation of authority. When something should be handled at a lower level, it needs to be sent back to that level. If something isn't one's direct business, it needs to be sent to the right place to be handled. This will, in the end, save even more grief. Again, we go to the Proverbs. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel that is not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. If you ever take a dog by the ears, you'll know what that means. That brings us to our third thought today, which is El Roy, the God who sees. Verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. The angel is none other, and I am certain of this, than the eternal Christ, our Lord Jesus. He's already appeared at 
other times and will continue to appear throughout the Bible at specific intervals. This is our Lord who is directing human history, which leads directly to himself, and all of which is intended to teach us spiritual lessons about his wonderful workings in human history and in our lives. As will happen time and time and time again in the Bible, it is by a spring or a well of water that many of these pivotal moments occur. This land is a dry and it's a barren waste and water is very precious. Finding it in the open like this must have seemed miraculous to Hagar, but it points to the spiritual side of the account, which is Jesus being our water of life and the director of our steps. And there are other times that we're going to see wells or springs of water come into focus during the Bible. One of them is coming up in a couple chapters when Abraham makes a covenant or a, a, a treaty between him and the king of the land at the time. And they establish a well and they name it Beersheba, which is there to this day. As a matter of fact, I've been there. It's out in the middle of Nowheresville, but it's an entire city that's built around this well that <laughs> goes back thousands and thousands of years. Later, Isaac is going to do the same thing at the same place, this well called Beersheba, which is the well of the seven or the well of the oath. Um, another one would be Jacob. If you remember, uh, Jacob went up to Padamaram to find a wife, and when he did, he went to a well, and there he met his beloved Rachel, or Rachel as we call her. And likewise, uh, when uh, Avram sent up the servant Eliezer of Damascus, we're going to get to that in another chapter or two, um, to get a wife for his son Isaac, the same thing happened. Rebecca was, uh, Isaac came to the well, and there's Rebecca, they met there. So you, you have these parallels going on in the Bible, the importance of wells in the Bible. So Rebecca, Rachel, both of them met their husbands at those places. We also have Moses, who met his wife, Zipporah, at a well. That was when he fled from Egypt and he went to Midian. There were the seven daughters of Jethro, the Midianite, and uh, he went and fought against some people that were you know, giving them grief, and he secured them, and they went back to their home, and Jethro was like, well, bring the guy here, and uh, he ended up giving Moses, his daughter Zipporah, all based on something that happened in a well. And then, of course, we come to uh, Jesus in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. And he said, you know, if you would ask, you could have gotten living waters. And she says, give me this living water so I don't have to come back day after day. And he says, go tell your husband. You all know the story of what happened there. It's pointing to Jesus Christ being the water of life. In every situation that's given in the Bible, it's to teach us something about the nature of God and particularly our spiritual need for this spiritual water of life, which is pictured by these wells. There's another one just came into mind is Samson. Samson, after killing a thousand Philistines uh, with a, the jawbone of a, a donkey, he was thirsty. He cried out to God, I've had this great deliverance and now I'm going to die because I don't have water. And God splits a rock and Samson drinks from the rock and he calls it En Hakori, which is the uh, spring of the collar, is what that means in uh, English. So these things are happening and they're showing God's providence and his direct hand in natural circumstances, which lead us to an understanding about him. And having brought Hagar into Avram's camp at the time she was in Egypt, she would have been familiar with his worship of God. And this visitation at this spring would have been a comfort to her that the true life which comes only from God and the spring of water that comes up from his open hand of grace was coming to her as well. We come to verse 8. And he said, 
Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. In this address, the Lord calls her Hagar, Sarai's maid. Before he allows her to speak, say anything at all, he preempts her by stating that she is the property of Sarai. Right back to Romans 13 that I read as our text verse. Submit yourself to the governing authorities. I'm guessing he did this, and then he asked the questions of her in order to keep her from saying something untrue. By telling her who she is and who she belongs to, he's hinting that he already knows the entire situation. As parents, we often do this in order to get our children to fess up to a situation. It's a way of building character while preempting somebody from getting caught in a lie. We may do this at work with our own employees, or we may take the opposite and try to trap them in a lie. And, you know, I, I personally am guilty of that with my children, but the wiser way is to get them to fess up to the situation rather than trying to trap them and then punish them. You know, human nature does step in, though. In turn, because of the way that the Lord has spoken to Hagar, he tells her who she is in advance, and he, he lets her know that he knows the situation. She speaks honestly back to him without hiding anything. And she says, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Because she acknowledged this openly and truthfully, he gives her his response. He says, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Had he not appeared to Hagar like this, and I want to tell you, there are these stories in the Old Testament. And if you've read the Bible enough, there's a point where you're going to say, why is this even in here? I'm not seeing, it's a great story, but I don't understand why it's in here. And when you come to things like this, I can assure you that there's always a purpose for that story, even if you may not see it. In the case of this story here, which seems like this interesting story, there is a real, real purpose. And Paul explains it in the New Testament. We would have a much less complete understanding of the doctrine of divine election, and there would be a lack of our understanding of the law versus grace, which Paul lays out very clearly in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, and which Paul uses Hagar and her son as object lessons in the superiority of the ministry of Jesus over the law of Moses. And we wouldn't know this unless this story was in here. After you've gone through the entire Bible, and I can tell you, I've read it, what, 25 or 30 times? I don't know. I read it every day of my life, and I read it probably 20 times the first year I met the Lord. It takes time, but after you've read it and read it, these stories start to come into clarity of focus when before they seem to have no significance of all, at all. God is working out this great plan in human history, and he's using real people, their lives and their circumstances in the execution of that plan. It's glorious to see what God has done. Verse 10, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. I am absolutely certain that this verse is placed here specifically, specifically to show us the superiority of the grace of Jesus Christ over the law of Moses. I said a minute ago that Hagar and Ishmael, her son who is yet to be born, will be used as examples in the book of Galatians. They will be compared to the barren Sarai, who will eventually have her own child named Yitzhak, or Isaac. Paul will compare Hagar to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and then the execution of that law in Jerusalem by the people of Israel. And 
at that time, he is going to say that is bondage. He will then compare Sarai, who is currently barren, and her state to the work of Jesus Christ in the Jerusalem which is above, which he calls freedom. After making this comparison, Paul is going to reach all the way back to the words of Isaiah, and he's going to say this, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, meaning Sarai. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate, meaning Sarai, has many more children than she who has a husband. Speaking of Hagar and the child to be born, who is Ishmael. The Lord promised Hagar in this verse that he would multiply her descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And yet, despite this vast number, it will be inconsequential to the multitude who will be received into God's kingdom through the spiritual rebirth, which comes by simple faith and faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. Again, this has happened so many times leading up to this chapter, and we're going to see it again and again and again, all the way through the Bible. When a name is given, it is the, the explanation of that name is given in the very verse in which it's given. The Lord has heard Hagar's affliction, and he has responded. And I think that anyone here who is a saved believer in Jesus Christ, who has called on Jesus in their time of need, could call out with confidence, Ishmael. Once you've been through the valley of tears and you've poured out your heart to God, you know perfectly well when he responds that it is in exactly the way that you needed for the moment in which you were burdened. As John Wesley so beautifully states about this verse, even there where there is little cry of devotion, the God of pity hears the cry of affliction. Tears speak as well as prayers. Verse 12, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Here we have a comparison of this son to be born, Ishmael, to a wild ass. The word for wild man is pare adam, which finds its comparison in the Bible in the wild donkey. He is going to be against every man, and he's going to be constantly fighting with them, and he will live in the presence or in the face of his brothers. And 4,000 years later, the sons of Ishmael, who inhabit the world and trace their lineage from Abraham down to our present day still fit this description, and it is the Arab people. This perfectly describes how they are, how they were, and how they will continue to be. Job even makes a comparison about the wild ass, which fits the Arabs to this day. And this isn't a slam against Arabs, this is just the way they are. We can look at groups of people and we can see how this culture is ingrained in them. Here's what Job says about it. Who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager? Whose home I have made in the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling, which is most of the Arab world? He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searches after every green thing, fulfilled even to this day. Verse 13, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, I, Have I also here seen him? who sees me. One thing that we cannot do, and this is important for all of us when we're typing on Facebook, if we want to keep trouble into our own lap, we will do this thing. But we should never assign a name to God. 
to assign a name to someone is to claim a type of authority over that person. To name a baby is granted to the person who will raise the baby. To name a business is the authority of the principal owner of the business. But that can be delegated, such as if I said to my wife, you pick the name of the business, whatever. You can delegate things, but in, when you name something, you are claiming a type of ownership over that. To name God is not within our right or our authority, and we need to be really, really careful not to be presumptuous like this. In this instance, though, Hagar, an Egyptian, is given the grace of bestowing upon God a name, which is not only accepted, but which is recorded for us even to this day. She said, you are El Roy. You are the God who sees. It's more of a title than a name, but it's still ascribed as a name. After saying this, she says something that is very difficult to understand in the Hebrew, and therefore it is translated many ways. If we were to go through all the translations of the Bibles just here, you would see how many different ways this next verse is, or, or statement that she says is translated. What she said is, um, uh, have I also here seen him who sees me? Now, this is a type of verse in the Bible that the King James translators in their original preface to their King James Version in 1611 would have said these words. And you don't see these in the King James Version anymore, but as part of the original preface, they said this, It hath pleased God in his divine providence here and there to scatter words and sentences of that difficulty and doubtfulness that fearfulness would better beseem us than confidence. In other words, when you have a particular translation of the Bible and you're not sure, don't argue over it. Because i got to tell you what, they weren't sure either. There are Hebrew words and phrases in the Old Testament that nobody knows exactly how to translate them. They don't know what they mean. And that's why there's such a variation in there. The King James translators were very wise in how they approached these things. And they laid it all out. You will not see that in the preface anymore. And that's because there's a group of people called King James Onlyism. And what they do is they fight that that's the only translation that you should use. And anybody else that uses any other translation is not following God's word. When in fact they, in their own preface, have completely refuted that in every other argument that they have on single version arguments. Okay, so keep that in mind. What she said in Hebrew is, Hagam halom ra'iti ahare roi. Have I also seen him who sees me? Or have I now seen the one who sees me? Or something very similar to this. One scholar, though, seems to have rightly seen in this exclamation, have I also seen the latter purposes or the designs of him who sees me? In other words, because the Lord told her what her son's name would be and then explained all that would come to pass from him throughout his generations, she is saying, I see what you intend, or aha. It's one of those things that's saying, you, you, God, are transcendent over time, and I know that what you see will come to pass. He sees not just what's happening now, but all things all the way into the future throughout all of history. Before we move on, I want to take and give you five particular reasons why we can discern that this is, in fact, the Lord Jesus, who is fully God and who was manifest in the flesh. It was he who spoke to Hagar and not just a messenger. The first is that he promised to accomplish something that only God could accomplish. And he foretold the future in a way that only God can. He did this at the time of Adam. He did it at the time of Noah. He's done it already 
with Avram, and he is going to do it elsewhere throughout the Bible. He told her that she would bear a son. She described what he would be like, even throughout all of his generations. Secondly, when she spoke to him, she clearly identified him as God. El is the word for God, El Roy, the God who sees. Were this not true, then it would be one of two things. It would be either Satan trying to usurp God out in the wilderness and, you know, work against his plans, or if he was a good angel, then he would have refused the title El Roy, just as the angel in Revelation refused worship when John fell at his knees. He said, don't do that, worship God. Okay, so that's a second logical argument why this must be Jesus. Third, when this was recorded by Moses, the writings designated him as Jehovah or Yahweh. The record states, then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And I brought this up in many sermons. Lord is all caps there. That is the divine name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. This name is not ever, ever, ever given to a created being. It is the divine name of the God of power and perfection. We can compare this to the angel who is in the account, uh, the redeeming angel of Genesis chapter 48, or the angel of God's presence in Isaiah chapter 63, or the angel of the covenant who is in Malachi chapter 3. And many other times in the Old Testament where an angel of the Lord appears in some type of human flesh and the term Jehovah is given to it. It can only apply to God, and yet he's being physically manifest there. Fifth, what we've seen cannot in any way be related to a created being. The knowledge, the works, and the authority belong to God alone. And because this angel is visible to the human eye, it must be the second member of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, which is Jesus Christ. We know this because elsewhere in the Bible, on many, many occasions, it says that no one has seen God, that God is invisible, that God dwells in an unapproachable light, etc. Only when God united with human flesh at the incarnation could man see God in human form, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. The well at this spring of water is named because of the meeting and the account that we've just seen. Again, in the coming pages, as I mentioned a moment ago, we are going to see wells name based on when they are discovered and what happens in the circumstances around the time when that well is discovered. It is a tangible and it is a permanent tie to the spiritual and supernatural nature of the temporal place in which they're standing. God has come spiritually into his creation and the supernatural light comes in and it is manifest at this place, which from that time on is a reminder of what did occur, if that makes any sense at all. I hope I explained that correctly, that that well in Beersheba, where that town is today, is a permanent tie to what occurred at the time of Avram. And if they know where this particular well is, the well of the God who sees, that is a permanent tie to what God has done in human history. Bier Lahai Roy means the well of the one who lives and sees me. And it is located between two places, Kadesh and Bered. We're going to see Kadesh mentioned again when we get to the book of Numbers, when the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness. Bered is never mentioned again in the Bible. So anyway, we have kind of an idea of where this well is. Not specific, though. Verse 15. So Hagar bore Avram a son, and Avram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. In fulfillment of the promise to Hagar, 
and in obedience to the name given by the Lord, the son born to Avram by Hagar is named Ishmael. God heard, God saw, God promised, and God delivered. Now, before we go on to the last verse of the day, I want to give you a spiritual application to you concerning this very thought. God gave Hagar a promise. He heard her cry. He saw her affliction. He made the promise, and he delivered. God has done the same thing for each and every person who is alive today. It's recorded right here in the book of Proverbs. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. I'm sure that in the process of that, God is going to reach out and help that person along the road as well. God has said that those who seek him will find him. And he doesn't make it difficult because in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, it says, In him we live and move and have our being. He's right here. He's waiting for the lost person to call on him. And even more, he's given us his word, which we can read and we can know who he is and what he's done in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals the unseen God to us. When we seek God with tears, when we seek him with afflictions, he responds and he does deliver. And this isn't only about salvation, though, but about every good blessing that he desires us to have. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel where you're going to get rich if you give money to the church. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about the spiritual blessings which are found in Jesus Christ when you call on him as Lord and Savior. God is waiting right there for us to receive the fullness of the promises of his son, Jesus. And the only way they are ever going to come to you is by reading your Bible, by attending Bible study, by meditating on the word of God, and yes, even coming out to church and listening to a sermon if it preaches from the word of God. That's the only way that we can ever enter into those spiritual blessings. We can't do it by rolling around in aisles in a church and speaking in crazy words. That's not what's going to bring us close to an understanding of who God is. It's by understanding his word and reveling in what he has done in human history through these people which point to his son and all of these spiritual applications that are being made that tell us about Jesus and his great love for us. Verse 16, Avram was 86 years old when he bore Ishmael to Avram. It's now 11 years since Avram entered the promised land in the years 2095 Anno Mundi, or from creation. He's finally had a son at the youthful age of 86 years old. This is where, I know, there you go. This is where the chapter ends, and it leads us in great anticipation of more excitement in the lives of Avram and Sarai as they live in the presence of the God who sees and controls the destinies of man. God is in control of your destiny as well. If you're watching this on video and you've never called out on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if there's somebody here that perchance has never truly called on Jesus in faith to rescue them from their sins, let me take just two minutes and tell you how. The Bible says that God loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son to the cross to pay the sin debt that each one of us owes. Anybody that says they've never sinned, and I've talked to people that say they never have, cannot understand the depravity of their own life. One sin, one lie separates us eternally from an infinite God. A finite sin against an infinite God causes an infinite separation, and there's nothing we can do to take care of that problem. The Bible very clearly explains that the blood of bulls and goats won't do it, that giving to the poor won't do it, that sacrificing your own child won't do it. 
because your own child is born as a son of Adam who has already received Adam's sin. The only way that we can be reconciled to God is to call on Jesus Christ because God stepped out of his eternal home, united with human flesh in the womb of Mary, and therefore he is fully God, his father is God, and he is fully man. His mother is a human being. He is the God-man. And so when he gave his life up on the cross of Calvary, he was able to bridge that gap between the finite and the infinite. And now he can put his hand, because of the power of the resurrection, on your finite head and on his infinite father, and he can say, all is well with your soul because of what I did. Call on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God will forgive every sin that you've ever committed, and you can never, never, never lose that salvation. It is a gift of God. God is not one to take back a gift. You can lose your rewards and you can lose your joy, but you will never lose the, the gift which God has bestowed upon you, which is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, I've got a poem on these 16 verses, which I do every week, and then after that we'll take communion and we'll be done. This poem is called El Roy, the God Who Sees. Now Sarai, Avram's wife, had borne him no son. Getting old, she figured her baby-bearing chances were done. But she had a maidservant, an Egyptian named Hagar, so she spoke to Avram words difficult to say. Our chances of having a baby are surely gone by far. So please go into Hagar to have a child. Yes, go this very day. Maybe I can bear children by her instead. So Avram heeded Sarai, and Sarai brought her to his bed. And when this came about, yes, Hagar, a child, she conceived. But because of this, she despised her mistress in her eyes. Sarai felt now like the one who had been deceived. And she went to Avram so that Hagar, he would chastise. My wrong be upon you. I gave her into your embrace. And now she mocks me. Yes, mocks me to my face. The Lord judge between me and you. But Avram said, this isn't for me to do. So Sarai dealt harshly with her Egyptian maid. And Hagar fled her presence and took off her home. But in the wilderness, she stopped for water and some shade. And it was here she met the Lord who spoke words of shalom. Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence come you? Where are you going to? I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress. This is the thing I do. Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, you see. They shall not be counted, for their multitude will be grand. In my hand is the future, and I've showed it to you plainly. Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your woes. He shall be a wild man, his hand against everyone, and everyone against him too, where he dwells and where he goes. This she, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees, and it is him I did see. And the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, which does refer to the well of the one who lives and sees me. So Hagar bore Avram a son, and his name was Ishmael. At 86, it is when it's happened. What a story to tell. Yes, God keeps every promise which proceeds from his word because he is the covenant-keeping, all-knowing, all-seeing Lord. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, yes, we thank you for this story, which seems to have no purpose when we first read it, but when we get through the Bible and we see the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the multitude which will come to dwell in his presence because of the work that he alone did, we can look back at this and we can say, I understand now why this is here. And I thank you for 
the chance to speak about Hagar and Ishmael and Avram and Sarai and all the heroes of the Bible. Thank you for that opportunity because it's such a blessing to look into your word and to see these beautiful pictures and types and patterns of the coming Redeemer, our Lord and Savior. What a great God you are. Thank you for every blessing you've given us. Please take care of each person here in the week ahead. Take care of their physical afflictions and the other things which are weighing them down. Help them to rejoice in the fact that it is done. It is paid, and if they've called on Jesus, they are eternally saved. Hallelujah to you. Thank you. And these things we do say in his glorious and exalted name. Amen.